Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can hear us live on 90.1 FM. You can also hear us live worldwide where we stream our audio to the masses at radionorthland.org. And not only can you listen to us live, but if you're missing us live and in the moment, you can go back, listen to this episode and well over seven epi- years of uh, Wrestling Memories. Not seven episodes, but seven years of Wrestling Memories episodes. It's a very, very cool place to hang out. We're also available live in the moment on TuneIn right now. So, hey, how you doing? Glenn Brockett with you back again in the saddle at Wrestling Memories Then and Now. Trying my best to get over what's left of this uh, season of winter that has uh, dri- driven a lot of us listeners up here, a lot of us people up here in northwestern Minnesota, just a little bit batty. Uh, but a man who is with me and he is back from his assignment. And uh, I, I, I thought I heard some teeth chattering uh, as I was doing this intro here. Uh, he's back. He's my co-host. My partner in crime, he's been out uh, on another um, mission, a mission of booking some great, talented uh, people to come on the program, tell their story, and uh, share their wrestling memories. Uh, This man is down in the mobile studio once again from deep in the heart of Texas. Let's uh, give a warm wrestling memories. Welcome back to my co-host, the grizzled vet himself, Mr. Mike McCurdy. Yes, please. Thank you. I need a warm welcome. You know, nice little 38 degrees here in uh, Texas today. So, you know, warm welcome. I, I appreciate that. But you're right, man. Been on assignment. You know, always looking for great interviews. Got one booked today, of course. But you know what? I'm going to let our listeners in on something. I got a confirmation earlier this after earlier this morning. Upcoming guests are wrestling memories in and now. We're going to talk to someone who might be considered a true heel. We're going to talk to someone who actually killed his grandma. Because Johnny Fairplay has confirmed that he will be a guest on an upcoming episode of Wrestling Memories Then and Now. He interviewed the man before, always entertaining, and I'm looking forward to having him on as a future guest. May the heat melt the snow that is sitting out here uh, as I'm looking out the window of my studio today. More, more snow in Minnesota still, I see. What you say, 10 degrees today? 10 degrees. <laughs> 10 degrees, but we didn't throw in the ever-popular real-feel wind chill, which is uh, making us feel like more like 17 below. Ooh, no, no, thank you. I'll stick with 38. Need to have one of those outdoor wrestling shows right now, though, you know? Hey, really test the guy's metal if he can get out there in the tights and the trunks and wrestle in uh, 17 degrees below. Well, you know what, Mike? Back in the day when I was a kid, uh, you know, in our, when, when winter would hit us pretty hard, back in my little small town of Lake Bronson, Minnesota, we would get together as many people as we could, the kids uh, around the neighborhood. Hey, we'd even get a couple of adults to get in on it, uh, whether or not that was uh, you know, against the law or not. But we'd all get on that old hill, and we would play the classic game of King on the Hill, man. And that's when I get this cold weather reminds me of uh, those many King on the Hill battles and how after I I started watching a little too much Mick Foley that I used to jump from the top of the hill onto somebody who was laying on the ground. So, yeah, wrestling, winter, great memories. I remember the King of the Hill games. We, we had a little more politically incorrect name for it, but we won't discuss that. But I remember those games, you know, lots of injuries and all that. And I'm sure most guys who got into wrestling probably played that once or twice in their life as well. Oh, wow, for sure. I'm sure. I mean, it, it's the best way to kill time in the winter. But you know what? Another way to kill time, uh, a better way to use our time wisely, I should say, is for you to introduce our guest and uh, help me to get to know because I'm always uh, amazed by some of the great guests that you've you, you brought on the show, guys that I've only merely, merely read about, whose stories at the end of it, I, I've, I've come out very impressed. And I, I'm having a feeling just by looking at some of the initial notes today that this is another great guest. So get on, get with it, and get our guest on out and let him tell his story 
Well, definitely, man. Over the years, you know, I've had a chance to make a lot of contacts, meet a lot of people. And this guy, definitely one of them. He's been a guest of mine on previous shows. And very, very old school talent, man. Loves the old school style of wrestling. Right down there in Tennessee. Star of the pro wrestling Mid-South Territory. Used to be NWA Mid-South Territory. And speaking of the NWA, this man, three-time NWA National Heavyweight Champion. None other, our guest is none other than the golden boy, Greg Anthony. Greg, welcome to the show. Oh, welcome, guys. How you guys doing today? We're doing good, man. We're doing good. Like I said, you know, trying to stay warm and all that, but, you know, we wanted to bring you on today, and like I said, use our, as Glenn said, use our time wisely, learn a bit more about your career. I'm sure our listeners would uh, be interested in learning more about, you know, different, you know, territories, different wrestlers. And so with that, we're just going to start off with, you know, the main question, the one we always kind of start off with is growing up, who are some of your influences? What made you look at professional wrestling and decide this is something that you wanted to do? You know, it's one of those things where, you know, I tell people my earliest memory of life, you know, aren't of, you know, a birthday cake or a new bike or anything like that. It's actually of, you know, my earliest memory is sitting on my grandmother's knee watching professional wrestling. Um, and more specifically, it was watching the NWA. So, you know, Ric Flair, Tully Blanchard, Bobby Eaton, Arn Anderson, Ole Anderson, things like that. That, that was my that was my first forte into uh, the wild world of professional wrestling. And um, as I grew up, it was just something that was always there. You know, it's, it's been with me my entire life, and uh, I couldn't dream of doing anything else. Now, you know, you mentioned some of those great talents and all that, and eventually these are some guys that you actually have had a chance to work with, you know, in your career. But what was one thing, you know, who was someone that you watched and that was the one that made you realize, you know, you wanted to do this. You wanted to be like that. You wanted to be in that ring. Well, that's actually kind of a twofold thing. Like when I was, when I was seven years old, you know, Flair versus Ricky Steamboat, two out of three falls uh, on the clash. That was the one where I, I physically got done watching the match, and I, I said to myself, okay, I'm going to be a professional wrestler. You know, that was the one that did that. Uh, fast forward about 10 years later, you know, I'm a, I'm a teenager, I'm in high school, and uh, Mick Foley versus uh, Undertaker, uh, Hell in a Cell, <laughs> and I'm watching that match, and I realized after that match that, well, if I'm going to be a professional wrestler, then I have to love it as much as Mick Foley does. You understand? Not that I want to get thrown off anything 20, 30 foot high, but I had to obviously take it as seriously as he did to do that to his body. So that was kind of my mindset. This, the two things, those are the two matches you can and credit and or blame with me being a professional wrestler. You know, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat, the Clash of Champions, because last night I just finished watching the third match of, well, considered the third match of that series, which started off with uh, WrestleWar, ended up with um, the Clash of Champions, and then ended up with Ric Flair retaining, getting the belt back, which then, of course, led into Terry Funk and all that. But I just finished watching that three-match series, and that was some amazing wrestling at that time. I mean, it still yeah, is. The, it still holds up to this and day. The third, and the third match was, you know, it was kind of like the greatest hits match. You know, it was a quick-paced 20-minute match, and it took place in Nashville, Tennessee. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that. So, you know, it was uh, it was definitely the greatest hits, and they, they went balls to walls in that one, for sure. Now, you know, growing up in Tennessee and all that, I mean, obviously major territory and all that, you know, that area. Um, did you get a chance to go to like live shows when you were a kid or was it just, you know, what you saw on television? 
Well, I was at, I was actually born in Southern Illinois, right? So in Southern Illinois, we got um, NWA Crockett, obviously, and we got WWF, and then we got World Class. So we moved to we moved to Tennessee when I was about six or seven, and the first Saturday morning, I'm kind of flipping through channels, and the first first two people I see are, are Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee. You know, so that was my introduction into Memphis wrestling. Uh, I actually I went to the Mid South Coliseum, but I didn't go to the Mid South Coliseum to see Memphis wrestling. I went when the NWA came through town, and I got to see Sting and Muda, and I got to see Flair versus uh, Dick Slater and Rick uh, Luger versus Eddie Gilbert, and then of course uh, you know throughout the years I went through local went to local shows a, a lot around here too. Hey, see that right there? That's a laundry list of of names, and all, which just goes to show you just what amazing talent there was back in you know the '80s and all that. Not just the territories, but like you said, you know Crockett, the WWF, you know AWA was still going a little bit around that time. But such an amazing list of talent and all that, and just all legends in their own rights. I mean, you just mentioned Luger, Gilbert, you know Sting, Muda, Flair. I mean, such a laundry list of guys. And you know, growing up. That had to have been great to be able to watch guys like that, especially now looking back on it and realizing, you know, just what you were exposed to at that time. Yeah, I mean, obviously the business was a much different thing. A lot of guys um, had a chance to, to live and make a living in professional wrestling and actually get out on the road and, and work two, 300 days a year. And that, that was, to me, that's the biggest key. Guys nowadays, unfortunately, they, they don't have that same opportunity. The guys that are making money um, – it's not really the same, the same deal. You know, they're, they're getting paid a flat fee to do whatever. They're not really out there to draw that house. Um, so the learning process has, has changed so much and the business has changed so much. And I'm, you know, you said in my, in the opening, I'm a very old school guy. I think it should go. I think we should take a lot more from, uh, 1979 than 2019, you know, most definitely, most definitely. Now, when you decided you wanted to get into the ring, you wanted to become a wrestler, what was the process that you began to start training? You know, who were some of your trainers and just what are some of your memories of, you know, that initial time in the ring? Well, we were trying, you know, we're from a small town here in Tennessee and like me and my, one of my buddies, we were trying to find a trainer. We were trying to find our way in. We were trying to find anything we could do to get started. And, you know, I was um, 17, 18 years old. My buddy was 16, 17 years old. And his dad was actually a police officer in town. And uh, Memphis Championship Wrestling, which was a developmental territory at the time for the WWF, uh, came through our hometown once a month. And uh, they weren't doing very well once a month. I mean, they were drawing maybe 50, 50 people to the show. So my buddy's dad, he went to the, went to the promoter, Terry Golden, and he said, hey, listen – my son and his friend, they're, they're trying to get into professional wrestling. You know, is there any way you can help them? Can you train them? Can you do whatever? And Terry Golden, being the, uh, the smart guy that he is, <laughs> said, I tell you what, how about I put them together in an intermission match? And basically what intermission match was was semi-main event on the next show. And that next show, they drew 200 people because, of course, we went around town all month saying, hey – we got our shot. We're going to wrestle. And 200 people showed up to the next show to see us wrestle. And we did that for a couple months before they lost their developmental deal. 
and then we caught on with a local promotion and finished up with training and things like that. So you actually got into the ring and actually wrestled in front of the crowd pretty early in your training then. Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, and this is not in any way, shape, or form how I recommend anyone doing it, you know. But that's this is what happened with me. I mean, he he basically saw an opportunity to put more, put an ass every eighteen inches, and that's the the route he took. So he put me and my buddy in there with little to no training, and we were actually, I don't want to blow our own horn, but we were actually pretty good for what we were. You know, we actually obviously had no psychology and things like that, but we were. Um, we watched it our whole lives and like we were very athletic for the time and things like that. So, and we actually didn't do that bad. Actually, we had William Regal and, uh, and, uh, K, he was K crushed then, which is our truth. You know, they, and, um, let's see, Regal, truth and, uh, reckless youth, reckless youth is probably the nicest guy came up to us and said, we did a really good job and couldn't believe that that was our, our first match. And, you know, really was uh, happy that we were getting into business. So, so how was that, you know, leading up to, you know, you said 200 people on it, the guy's basically putting you in the ring for an intermission match, which you said semi-main winner. What was it like, you know, going to the ring that night, stepping through those ropes in front of that crowd for the first time with, like, as you said, little or no training, but going in there to actually perform in the ring, which is what you've been wanting to do all this time? Yeah, it was, it was completely nerve-wracking. I mean, it was one of those things like, you know, he got us in the ring earlier that afternoon and, and trained with us a little bit. And, like, you know, um, it was it was tough. You know, first, you know, one of the first times you're in a wrestling ring, it's 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 tough, you know. And um, it was just you know, so many different emotions because you don't know really what to expect and what thing. But after that match, I was hooked. There, there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, I mean, I was going to be a professional wrestler, you know. And um, it was just, uh, it was, like I said, a realization of, of what I want to do my whole life. Now, you said as a child, you know, you, your earliest memories were sitting on your grandmother's knee watching professional wrestling. So I'm going to assume that, you know, that grandma was a wrestling fan as well. <laughs> the Golden Granny, if you see her on, she comes to every one of our shows now. And um, she's been a wrestling fan for over 70 years. And uh, she, you know, she saw Bruiser Brody and Flair, you know, in an old high school gym back in the day. She used to go to Keel Auditorium and watch Harley Race and Johnny Valiant go against each other. I actually, one of the most, I, I collect wrestling memorabilia, obviously, but actually one of the things that I hold dearest to me is she actually has a notebook of when she was a kid, like actually a child, and she would write down the results of the matches. And it's this little black leather notebook that she used to write down all that stuff. And that, that probably has to be one of the best keepsakes I have. Well, you know, see, and it's things like that. That's how, you know, one of the things we do on the show here is to you know, let people come on, tell their stories, and we help preserve wrestling history. But that's one of the ways that, you know, wrestling history is preserved now is someone sitting with that notebook and writing down those results. So, you know, I think that's amazing. I would love to see something like that. that that's great, you know, because a lot of people do that nowadays, you know, and, that's how we have access to all these match results going, you know, back to, you know, early 1900s and all that is because of people like your grandmother. I think that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And like I said, she, she comes to all of our shows now, but I mean, there was years where she didn't cause she, you know, I'm her, you know, I'm her baby grandson. You know, she was afraid I was going to get hurt. So she came to one of my first matches actually. And uh, I took a backdrop on the floor and she, uh, she walked, she walked out of the arena and stood outside till the match was over. And uh, 
she's up until about a couple of years ago, she'd only been to a few matches. But like I said, she's she's a faithful she's a faithful fan now. She goes to every one of our shows over the last three or four years. Now, and Amy mentioned that uh, you said it was at the show uh, was Reckless Youth. You know, some of our listeners, you know, may not know that name, but at that time, Reckless Youth was one of like the top indie guys for the area. Yeah. Um, do you have any like memories of Reckless Youth? Do you ever get a chance to work with him other than that? Night there. I, I mean, I saw him several times uh, doing the Memphis Championship wrestling stuff, but um, I never actually got to work with him. And that's one of those, you know, one of my bucket list guys that just kind kind of got away because he obviously he's he's pretty much retired now and doesn't wrestle. But he's on my Facebook, and I've I've got to tell him this before. You know, he he was he was so nice to us coming up when he didn't have to be. And you know, Reckless Youth was he was the original king of the Indies. You know what I mean? When guys talk about CM Punk and they talk about Daniel Bryan and guys like that, you know, it all started with Reckless Youth. You know, he was the first guy that had an internet buzz and WWE kind of took notice and he got, you know, he was hired by developmental. Um, and you, if you go back and watch some of his stuff, he was, he was really, um, he was smooth as silk, but also he was really, um, he's one of the first guys that I saw that started meshing a lot of those different styles together. He, he was taking stuff from Japan. He was taking stuff from Mexico. He was taking stuff from America. And he was just kind of using that melting pot style that we're seeing nowadays. Yeah, I remember back, uh, I want to say it was 95, we had a local indie group that came into town where I lived. And, uh, you know, it was a local group and also it was all indie guys. But they had one main event. We had the Honky Tonk Man. Honky Tonk Man came in. But I wasn't yeah. excited to see the Honky Tonk Man. I was excited because Reckless Youth was on the card wrestling. Uh, Jason Styles was there. So that was what excited me. I wanted to see Reckless Youth. My friends are all like, but dude, the Honky Tonk Man. I'm like, no, dude, Reckless Youth. That's the guy we want to see. You know, now granted, you know, seeing Honky Tonk Man. Okay, you know, WWF and all that. But for me, it was Reckless Youth. Yeah, that, that, that night I was telling you about that me and my buddy had that intermission match. The, the main event that night was Reckless Youth and uh, Stephen Regal, William Regal. And, um, I mean, just amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, did you get a chance to talk after this match? Did you get a chance to talk with uh, Regal that much? You know, did he give you any advice? I mean, because obviously another, you know, in-ring just technician. The man's amazing in the ring. Yeah, I mean, he, he came up to me and my me and my friend, and he gave some really nice words of encouragement about, you know, uh, sticking with it. And, you know, he started out when he was a kid too, you know, just, you know, don't get discouraged and keep making yourself better. The one thing he really told me was to, cause I was doing the, when I kicked out, I was doing the Ric Flair kick out the barely get your shoulder up, kick out all the time. And I did that probably the entire match. And he noticed that. And he, he told me not to do that. He said, when you kick out bloody kick out, you know what I mean? In his, in his, in his own little way. So, um, it was, it was amazing that he was even talking to me, you know, but I think that really, that really can tell you what kind of guy he is and how much he loves professional wrestling. Cause we were, we were not just nobodies. We were below nobodies. You know what I mean? And like, he came up to us and like took the time to, you know, encourage us and give us some kind of advice. So you've had your, your first match, you know, in front of the 200 people for the, uh, you said after that, you continued on with your training. Where, what happened from there? Where did you go from there after that initial debut? Well, we did a couple – there was a couple months of shows like that, so we got to do that. And then whenever they came to town, we got to the building early and worked out and things like that. And then um, after WWE pulled the developmental from them, uh, we ended up 
going uh, to a local promotion, which was Warriors of Wrestling, and we caught on. And we they trained more regularly, obviously. So we got a chance to get in there, and from there I was with, um, you know, Rude from Naughty by Nature, which is a tag team around here that was really established. And, um, you know, I had some training with Motley Cruz, who was, you know, he was a guy that, you know, tagged with Bill Ash and things like that. And then, um, you know, eventually I got to hook up with Dr. Tom Pritchard for a weekend, you know, things like that. I just continued my training. Once I realized what was going on, I, I sought out as much training and as much knowledge because as people would say things to me, you know, when I, when I first got into wrestling, you know, I'm, I'm a very analytical guy. I thought I understood what was going on. I really did not, you know, and that was very evident very quickly. I was like, okay, I don't know half of what I think I do, you know? So I started, you know, really taking upon myself to find as much knowledge and talk to as many people as I could. So everybody that came in to the company, you know, I just picked their brain, picked their brain, picked their brain, you know? So I was very lucky. I had a lot of people that were very, um, open to learning, I guess, open to teaching. Now, early in your career and as you're going on through, who are some of the uh, the guys that you got to wrestle against, name-wise, or not even just name-wise, but just, you know, maybe even locals? But who are some of the guys that you got to work with early on in your career? Well, I kind of kept all of us young guys together in the beginning, um, you know, because we were all, we were doing all that kind of light heavyweight, cruiserweight kind of thing. But um, I'd say, you know, Sermo was was one that was around obviously um you know Derek king was another one you know we had um bulldog reigns uh blade boudreau you know there was a lot of guys that have been around for a while they were doing stuff on memphis television things like that you know and they they understood they you know it was just five seven years before that they were in the same spot we were in so they were very um very open to helping us too you know uh, the main thing is just getting repetition, just to get in there and work as much as you can. All right, well, uh, Glenn, I'm going to bring you in for a few minutes because you've heard a laundry list of names, so I'm sure there's a few questions you might have for our guests now. Yeah, I'll throw a few uh, uh, Greg's way here. Uh, you mentioned just uh, a couple of minutes ago uh, having a chance to uh, cross paths with Dr. Tom Pritchard. Uh, Dr. Tom, of course, uh, had a, a very well-known career in the, in the business in ring, but he's gained a lot of respect to uh, also uh, to another generation of wrestlers, wrestlers as a, a trainer and a guy whose learning tree uh, – that would be a must to sit under the, through his uh, workshops or one-on-one sessions. What did you glean from uh, from Doctor Tom just by uh, you know being briefly around him? Because uh, this is a guy that has just so much knowledge and has been a lightning rod for for development as far as uh, some of these guys that went on to bigger things in uh, you know WWE and beyond. Well, you know this is this is like two thousand one, two thousand two when I when I had a seminar with Doctor Tom. And, like, I'm a very, like we said, I'm a very old-school guy, so I was still very much in, hey, let me watch Ricky Steamboat. Hey, let me watch the Rock and Roll Express. Hey, let me do this. Let me do that. And everyone else was very, you know, present, you know, you know, high-flying, hardy boys, you know, let's do this, let's do that. And when Dr. Tom came in, it was just kind of one of those situations where he was like, yeah, watch Steamboat. <laughs> yeah, watch the Rock and Roll Express. Yeah, hey, tell – Go out there and walk and talk a match. And that became a big thing with us was walking and talking because so many guys like to plan out their matches from A to Z. And it was, it was very frustrating because I didn't, I didn't personally like that method. And uh, he was very big on walking and talking. So me and another guy named Alan Steele, we kind of looked at each other and said, okay, from here on out, 
you know, we're doing nothing but walking and talking, and we're going to see between the two of us who has the best match of the night. And it became like a just a little competition between us. And that was one of the biggest time periods of learning that I had because you learn so much by having to walk and talk and come up with things on the fly and listening to the people, you know. And uh, that's one of the things that Dr. Tom really set set me on that path, as well as one of the best things he said was that wrestling is ice cream. You know, there's, there's chocolate, there's vanilla, there's strawberry. It's all ice cream, but there's different flavors. So um, there was many – what he's basically saying was there was many ways to do a lot of things. There was a lot of different ways to do an arm drag. There's a lot of different ways to do different things. But as long as it's your way and you like it and it works for you, then do it that way. You've had a chance uh, in, in your career to work with, with, with some of those guys uh, that you were able to watch growing up. And, uh, you know, when we talk about tag team wrestling, I mean, the Rock and Roll Express come to mind. I mean, I grew up, uh, you know, uh, in, a- in AWA country, but I ended up getting, when I, we first got our taste of cable in 1985, was right around when the Rock and Roll Express were, were in Crockett. So I got a chance to check out uh, both the Rock and Roll Express and uh, my first taste of the Midnight Express. Now, you've had a chance to, to work in ring uh, with the rock and rolls and and uh, with Bobby Eaton. Uh, what was, I mean, I, I could not imagine just the knowledge just being around and breathing the same air and being in the same room with these guys, let alone working with them. And we may end up going a few more years into your career to talk about this this phase of your career, but could you talk about just the, the what it was like? I mean, getting over yourself and then having to work with these guys in the ring. I mean, going from that, that fan who uh, you know, who really believed in what these guys are doing, but what was that like to be in there working with them and having your moment? Yeah. The, the Bobby Heaton thing was something very special because, you know, I was always drawn to, and I didn't realize this when, when you're a kid, but I was always drawn to the, the seamless Southern heels, you know, the Bobby Eaton's, the Arn Anderson's, the Ted DiBiase's, the Ric Flair's, the Tully Blanchard's, that's what I was fixated on as a child, and I didn't even realize it. So when Bobby was moving to Arkansas, near my area, and they were looking for him to have a tag team partner. Well, first they pitched this guy in Arkansas, and um, then my name came up, so they were going to do, well, we'll tag with that guy in Arkansas, and then we'll tag with Greg in Tennessee. Well, then the guy in Arkansas, for some reason, I think someone got in his ear or something, but he, he backed out and uh, decided he wasn't going to do it. So then all of a sudden that became my spot. So then me and Bobby were tagging as Midnight Gold. And it was one of those things where I was, um, obviously I was in awe. But Bobby is the nicest guy in the history of wrestling, period. Give you the shirt off his back if he just met you nice. You understand? And he made me feel very at home. And, and the thing about Bobby was once he and I really got to know each other and really started talking, you know, he, he put me over like a million bucks. He said that I was the captain of Midnight Gold. <laughs> Every idea that I ever had for, for whatever we were doing, he told me that was a great idea and that made perfect sense. And then every pin that Midnight Gold ever took Bobby Eaton took because he refused to let anyone pin me. Now, how many guys in his position in professional wrestling would ever do that? You know what I mean? Like, he went above and beyond 
to help me out in that situation. And because that was the first time on a national level that people started saying my name, Greg Anthony, and, and they were saying in the same sentence with Bobby Eaton. Have you heard about this kid that's tagging with Bobby Eaton? You know? Did you ever think of like in the back of your mind or with Bobby, though, because he came up into the business at such a young age that he never really forgot what it was like to be in that position, to be someone like a young kid like he was, to be thrown into a man's business and, and to be able to thrive the way he did. I mean, from his early on in his days working, uh, you know, for George Goulas into the Memphis stuff. I mean, Bobby was a very apt pupil and uh, the way he kind of pays it forward is a, a really good example of a guy that, that that, you know, has a respect and has the wherewithal to see other guys that were in his position through. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And Bobby, Bobby to this day is, is still a wrestling fan. He still loves watching great wrestling. And, you know, we were tagging up. It was, it was near the end of his career. It was, the last, it was actually the last two years of his career. I was actually in his last match. And so, obviously, physically, he wasn't able to do some of the things that he used to do. And I was there as kind of the workhorse to ma- to make sure everything went accordingly. But like, there'd be some times that I would be working with somebody, and this would be somebody that I've known for you know ten years, and we're in there and we're going, and I look over in the corner, and Bob Eaton looks like it's 1985 again, and I tag him in, and he starts going like it is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like he, and that that's how I know he loved wrestling because he was going to get paid the same amount of money no matter what he did. You understand? But there was times when he got he got in that match and he was like, This is fun. You know what I mean? Like this is what this is what the business is supposed to be about and this is the way it's supposed to go. And he would go out there and he would go balls to the walls again with someone else. You had a chance. I mean, you grew up in a time, uh, you know, as a wrestling fan, uh, where uh, and through the years, the uh, the tape culture was such a a big, big, big presence on the business because you know it was it wasn't like the way we have it today with YouTube, where a lot of things are a click away or a a WWE network or a High Spots network, where you can find all of this stuff with easy access. Uh, You have to remember some of those days of, of getting tapes and and be able to get exposed to so many different styles i mean a guy up here in minnesota like myself i got to see like other great territories what was going down in memphis uh with 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 Jarrett and lawler or even down in texas too i mean the tape uh culture i mean i think a lot of people a lot of kids coming up now probably would never really uh truly get to appreciate because everything is just such instant gratification with the youtube era yeah I, i get very very frustrated with kids, I know I sound like an old man, but I get very frustrated with the kids nowadays in that aspect of it. Because, like you said, I—I I mean, I was a tape trader too. You know, I, the first time I saw a, uh, a Super J Cup or ECW or you know a couple different things, like I had to tape trade for it. I had to tape. I had to, you know, dub off some of my old NWA stuff and send it to a guy in California that sent me stuff. You know what I mean? And that was like, you know, that was a month worth of you know waiting and dealing just to get those tapes. So, yeah, I, I get frustrated when, you know, we have this, this such rich knowledge of professional wrestling at everyone's fingertips. And, like, I say Jack Briscoe, and people look at me with a blank face. You know what I mean? Or I say uh-huh. Nick Bockwinkle for, for an AWA guy like you. When I say stuff like that, and they kind of, I kind of know, I've kind of heard the name, but I've never really seen any of his matches. It just blows my mind. You know, because if I was breaking into the business right now, and I was 18 years old, and we had YouTube, and like you said, 
WWE Network and all that kind of stuff, I would be going nuts. I, as a matter of fact, I still do. I'm, you know, I've been in the business almost 20 years now, and I still search every day to find something. You know, that's where I appreciate the, you know, having come from the tape trading era because you know what? People, you never know what you're going to find on YouTube because of people who have saved those things, you know, whether uh, whatever generation that tape may be getting as far as the transfer. But it's just amazing how many things that were saved then, you know, and nowadays, you know, back when I remember in the VCR days, just for example, this is not a wrestling thing, but. I love watching the commercials now and I almost kick myself in my old tapes when I used to just push the pause button because it's just kind of fun to watch how things were back then and, and, and try to make sense of what it is today with everything at the feet, every, the world at people's feet. And yet there's just such an ignorance in, in wrestling is, you know, for some portion of the wrestling fans, that's still evident. And again, I'm with you and it, it, it just boggles me that if you can say a name, you can go on, you can click on something, you can go read something. It's right there. It was a struggle back in the day for us. I mean, I guess it is because we came from an, uh, that generation. We can truly appreciate just how much stuff that we can find so easily now because we went through the struggle. Well, yeah, and that's, that's something I've said this, on uh, on Facebook recently was I used to get like actually like mad when somebody would drop a name that I didn't know. You know what I mean? Like if someone said a wrestler's name that I, that, Hey, Oh yeah. So-and-so was really good. You know, if they said Bill Ash, for instance, let's say Bill Ash, if they said Bill Ash, I was, and I didn't know who Bill Ash was. I was mad. I was like, I should know who, if they know who they, he is, I should know who he is. And then I would spend, you know, I would search title histories and I find out where he worked and I try to find something. You know what I mean? So I, I, I try to read whatever I could. So I know who Bill Ash was. Oh, I, I absolutely. And even when I was a kid, I mean, for the, through the uh, Stanley Weston magazines, I mean, again, a lot of the stories, of course, were uh, in the kayfabe era, but the information was there. I mean, as far as finding guys in different territories, and it was always like, oh, I can't wait till they come to, you know, to where I can find it in my TV market, this wrestler up there. There was just so much more wonderment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember, you know, and I'm sure Michael remember this too, you know, when Global you know, started in Dallas, you know, and they had the North American champion. Well, me as a kid, I heard North American champion. I said, well, there, if there's a North American champion, there has to be a South American champion. There has to be a European champion. You see what I'm saying? Like I, yes. I start putting all that together. Like, you know, what, what else could be out there? You know what I mean? Same thing with Muda. When Muda, you know, really hit hard, I was like, well, he's from Japan and he wrestles. How many other Japanese wrestlers are there? You know what I mean? And that's when you start doing research like that, you know? It, it keeps you searching, man. And, you know, it, it, it's just a testament yeah. to your love of the business. And you've also had opportunities to, uh, you know, kind of rub shoulders. I mean, not just in the in the ring working, but you, you've, you've competed through the years at these events that have been held in, in cooperation with the Cauliflower Alley Club, too. I mean, that's another experience altogether. Yeah, I've, I've been really lucky, you know, the last... Uh, seven years I've got to compete at the CAC and I actually main evented the last two years of the CAC and uh, it's just a huge honor you know to be in, in the presence of all those all those great workers all those people that really care about what the business is trying to protect and what we're trying to hold on to and to for them to say hey you know you're good enough to be in, in our main event you know I mean that that really meant a lot to me and also I mean again 
I, I can't stress it enough. I mean, for those fans who have, are curious, I mean, I, I've been out to one cauliflower alley club, but I, I, I wish I could make it. The logistics haven't worked out for me, but to be able to get to one of those, I, I felt it was an awesome experience. And it was one of those things that I can't, I can't recommend it enough for, for an old school fan, uh, for a person maybe who's a younger fan who, who has been following some of the history of wrestling. This is one of those times, especially in the next few years here, uh, as we see many more of our legends go up to the great ring in the sky. This is such an opportunity to say hello to these guys, to say thank you. Hell, to even have a drink with them uh, or even go bowling with them. I mean, just to get to be able to sit in uh, such great esteemed company with these vets of the territory era and beyond it's one of those things you really got to give it a chance if, if you have the time and it works out for you to get out to cac in vegas yeah absolutely i mean it, they're you know they they really you know brickhouse brown you know just passed away this year but he he was at the cac last year when he was fighting his cancer and uh you know for a while there the cac really didn't talk about the things that they did you understand they do they they helped wrestlers and they just kind of kept quiet about it and didn't really talk about it. But then they started asking the people they helped if it would be okay if they told some of the stories, you know, of what they were doing so people understood what was going on. And I think it's a really good organization uh, because, you know, they, they help out that generation, the, the Brickhouse Browns. And uh, when One Man Gang's house had completely flooded in Louisiana, they got him moved, you know, where he didn't have to worry about stuff like that. And it's just um, – it's one of those things where wrestling needs to take care of wrestling. You know, and I, I'm a big proponent of that. We need to take care of ourselves and, and help ourselves out as much as, as best we can. So and I think CAC is really doing a good job of, of doing that. Now, before I, I hand it back over to Mike, who's been to a, a plenty of CACs, can you take a few memories that stand out for you as far as, you know, maybe it could be an in-ring memory or uh, seeing somebody you're like, oh, wow, made your eyes uh, pop out of your head because you're like, wow, I can't believe that's him or her. Well, I, and this is my first year I was there. Um, I wrestled Zach Gowan. Mm -hmm. uh, Zach Gowan and... Um, it was just an amazing match, you know, and a lot of people didn't know who I was at that point, but we went out there and, and tore the house down. And like, I actually had a Canadian promoter, you know, come to the locker room and kind of like after the match, like almost immediately after the match, find me. It was like, dude, you know, Greg Anthony, right? And he's, I was like, yes, sir. And he goes, man, you're, you're amazing. You know, you're, you're one of the best heels I've seen in professional wrestling. That's, that's awesome. That, that meant a lot to me that that guy, especially would, come find me like that afterwards. I mean, he, made, he pretty much had to beeline for me to do that. And then that next day, um, Sin Bodie, Kizarni, he was uh, holding a seminar, and uh, he actually, he, he put me over. He's like, you know, you know, Greg Anthony, you know, and Zach Gallon, they had, without a doubt, the best match last night, and I got like a standing ovation in that seminar. And stuff like that, you know, stuff we can't really – I can't put that on a resume, you understand, or I can't really, I don't really get an opportunity to talk about that kind of stuff a lot, but that's stuff that means a lot to me when I have the respect of my peers like that.
Oh, absolutely. It, it just says so much. And it just it's such the ultimate form of flattery. But it's also something a flattery that has been earned because you're, you're showing off your wares in the ring and they're liking it and they're receiving it and you're getting well received and you're getting well received at such a stage like that where there are a lot of eyes uh, from from the pro wrestling world on you from past, present and future. And I'm going to bring back uh, a CAC vet, uh, the grizzled vet, uh, I call him uh, Mr. Mike McCurdy uh, for the next uh, segment here of the program. Uh, Mike, I'm going to let you uh, take over here with our guest, the golden boy, Greg Anthony. All right. <clears throat> uh, Greg, we're kind of like, like Glenn said, we're kind of, you know, skipping around here on your food and all that. But one thing I'd like to talk about a little bit is, uh, you know, a gentleman you've had a chance to work with and who was a promoter for, I think was a, I've seen a lot of the footage. I think was a great group. And that was, is Matt Riviera and traditional championship wrestling. Cause when it comes to like an old school presentation, that's exactly what traditional championship wrestling was. I thought it was a great product, but I'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, working with Matt, working with traditional championship wrestling for the time that you did. Yeah, Matt was, um, TTW was, like you said, was, was traditional championship wrestling. It was exactly what that meant. You know, we were traditional. We were trying to bring back what we loved about professional wrestling. And, you know, when I tell guys, Wrestle as much as you can. Wrestle anywhere you can because you never know where opportunity is going to come up. You know, I was wrestling at some, you know, show in, in BFE, Arkansas, <laughs> that, uh, you know, it was like a Sunday afternoon or something like that. And I came to the show and, like, you know, the promoter gives the whole spill of, hey, guys, there's not a lot of people out there. You know, we're still going to have the show if you want to wrestle. You can wrestle. If you if you don't, you can go ahead and go home. You know, whatever you like. And I said, well, you know, wrestlers wrestle, so I want to wrestle. So I went out there. I was first match with actually the promoter's trainee. And I go out there, and we have a really good match. And I come to the back, and, and Riviera goes, hey, man, that, this is the first time I've ever met Riviera. the first time I've ever been on a show on with him. And he goes, hey, man, that was a really good match. How long have you been training the kid? And I said, well, he's not my kid. He's actually the promoter's kid. I, this is the first time I've ever met him. And he's like, that's you've never met that kid before and you just had that kind of match with him. And I was like, yeah. And he booked me on everything he ever did from there on out. And, uh, that was kind of what it was. He, he saw the golden boy, Greg Anthony for what I was. He didn't, he never tried to change me in any way, shape or form. He, he loved what I did and how I did it. And he put the full force of TCW, you know, behind me, you know, and uh, I'll be ever for grateful for him. He's done more for me in my career than anyone else. You know, and um, it was all because of TCW and that television, the way he presented me and the way that uh, he allowed me to to grow in that role, I guess. You know, funny story about Matt. I met him in uh, 2014. Well, I'd seen him at CSE before, but I met, I got to work a show with him in 2014 out here in uh, Fort Worth with ICW, you know. And when I met him, I walked up to him and I saw him. And I realized at that point in time, because, and I, I said this to him, I was like, wow, I said, my wife watched you on Megan Once a Millionaire, and he just kind of looks at me, hush, and goes, yeah, yeah, we don't talk about that. But that was the first thing I said when I saw Matt was, my wife watched you on Megan Once a Millionaire. Because I don't know if any of our listeners right. remember this, but yeah, he was on the, the reality show, the pro wrestler and all that, and I think that's where Mr. 5.5 got started. But Matt's a great guy. And as far as old school wrestling goes, he's another one that's, you know, a true traditionalist right there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the, that's the first time I'd ever saw him too. Like 
was on Megan Once a Millionaire, and I knew about him obviously, but I never actually met him until that that day in Arkansas. But you know, he's um, he's he's one of the smartest guys in this business, and he's and I'll say this why for everybody he's the he's the hardest working man in professional wrestling he has worked hard on every aspect of professional wrestling you can imagine since i've known him and i i, don't, I can't think of anybody that works harder than he does now on the subject of matt we'll talk a little bit about this um you were part of a, a stable to say with matt uh the empire you matt riviera steve anthony i believe tim storm you know a very formidable group. I mean, for our listeners who may not know some of these names, but, you know, Tim Storm, former NWA heavyweight champion. I'm actually going to see him this weekend in uh, Grapevine. He's going to be at a show. Uh, you know, you, Matt, what are some stories you could share about, you know, the Empire for our listeners who may not know that name? I mean, the Empire, for, for lack of a better term, we were the, the modern-day horsemen. And that was um, – and that's not an exaggeration in my opinion because – with what you had with the empire was we all lived in different states, but every Saturday night at any given time when we were together, we could be main eventing four different shows. Now, what group can you say did something like that? You understand? Like we were on top everywhere we went, not on top because of politics or whatever. We were on top because we were the best at what we did. And, uh, you know, Tim Storm obviously went on to be the you know the world heavyweight champion, and I feel that he was probably the best world heavyweight champion that the NWA's had in probably the last 10, 15 years. You know, uh, the way he presented himself and, and the way that he presented the championship, and uh, I think that um, Riviera, like I said, is, is the hardest working man in professional wrestling. I was always, you know, I consider myself one of the smartest guys in this business. You know, I, I consider myself a historian and things like that, and we were trying to. Once again, we're trying to sway the business in the direction that we think it needs to go. And I've got to say, that, you know, also as well, uh, when it comes to presentation, because sometimes presentation is the main thing. Um, I got a chance to talk with a guy here a couple weeks ago. He talked with one of the students that I've been working with about presentation, how you show up at a show. And you see guys that show up and they've got, you know, their jeans, their T-shirt, you know, you know cutoffs, whatever. They're wearing their you know, hoodies. You guys show up at a show. I've worked a couple shows with you and Matt and everything else, but you guys show up and, you know, you're dressed professional. You come in and you've got, you know, the shirt that, you know, Matt comes in in a full on suit. Tim comes in, he'll have a suit tie. You know, you guys play the part as well as presentation in the locker room as well, which kind of is an important part of wrestling. But I think a lot of the new kids nowadays, they don't quite understand that. No, I mean, the guys nowadays, they're pretty much, you know, just, you know, little video game guys. <laughs> unfortunately, you know, we, we present ourselves as professionals and as, and as athletes, cause that's what we are. And, um, like I said, we, we believe that we were, um, the best of the best uh, to take one of my phrases, you know, and, uh, we, we went out every night and tried to prove that, you know, guys would go out there. There's no telling how many times we were on shows with guys that were trying to do that ROH fast paced, you know, kick each other in the face a hundred times kind of style. And they would get no reaction. And then meanwhile, you know, we just walk out the curtain and the places want to kill us. You know what I mean? So, like, who's who's a better worker at that point? You know, I, I'm going to take the empire over anybody. Now, we're going to talk a little bit. Um, as I mentioned in your intro, you are a three-time NWA National Heavyweight Champion. Uh, this would be during the time, I believe, Bruce Tharp was in charge at that point. 
But um, as an old school wrestler, you know, growing up, you know, getting to watch, you know, NWA, Crockett, and stuff like that, getting to represent the NWA as the national heavyweight champion, being part of the NWA, you were at the Parade of Champions that we did here in Fort Worth on WrestleMania weekend, which was a which was a pretty major event for that point in time. It was the first event of WrestleMania weekend here in Texas. But what was it like working with the NWA and that? Because it was a little bit different than, you know, the the original NWA. Yeah, I mean, I obviously it was a it was a you know kind of a childhood dream kind of come true. You know, me being able to represent the NWA as national champion, same title that Tully Blanchard held, same title that Paul Warndorf and Mass Superstar and Tommy Rich and you know the list goes on and on. Um, you know, the NWA itself it just never really got off the ground like we wanted it to. You know, what I mean, there was there it felt like the direction was never really there. You always have to have a bona fide colonel you know i mean someone that knows exactly where to send the troops to march and you know how to march them and what direction and the whole nine and i just felt like we lacked that direction you know what i mean uh we did a lot of great things obviously like you said that parade of champions event was a, was a great event you know um kicked off wrestlemania weekend that kind of thing and um you know unfortunately with the nwa like i said i grew up <laughs> those three letters meant a lot to me because that's what I consider my earliest memories in life are watching the NWA. But unfortunately when you're NWA, you're not NWA for life. You know, you're NWA for a little bit. And that's kind of been the MO. I've, I've been with the NWA off and on my entire career, but it never lasts too long. Now, um, I'm going to go with it. I'm assuming you watch, you know, current product and all that. We talked about anything and all that, but you got now a group coming in and it's, AEW All Elite Wrestling, and this is pretty much a built from the ground up. It's an it's an, it's an indie group, you know. Cody, the Young Bucks, on. What is your opinion on the rise of you know AEW in the current wrestling scene? Because it's right now one of the hottest things out there, and you know everybody wants to be part of AEW right now. I mean, it, it kind of is what it is. I mean, um, Cody and them, you know, you know, find a billionaire. <laughs> that wants to have a wrestling show, and here we go. But the thing is, we've we've seen that it doesn't matter how much money you have, you can still fail at professional wrestling. Um, Ted Turner, Dixie Carter, you know, come to mind, obviously. You know, you have to, you have to make wrestling decisions, and you have to understand professional wrestling as a whole to make it successful. If AEW makes WWE competitive, it makes them turn up the turn up the jets a little bit, then great. If it's a place where guys can go and make a living, other guys can go and, and actually make a living in professional wrestling, then great. Um, what I'm worried about is it trying to change the core of professional wrestling that, you know, guys like me are trying to protect, you know? Exactly. And like I said, you mentioned it too. I mean, we've had a lot of the upstarts. You mentioned Dixie Card with TNA Impact on it. Obviously, you know, Ring of Honor, when they first started, they were kind of the, the indie darling everybody talked about. A lot of people are hoping with that for, you know, All Elite Wrestling. Now, granted, you know, second event, they sold out. You know, StarCast is a part of this line. And it's the hot thing right now. But right now in the indie scene, I think, in my opinion, the indie scene is, like, resurging everywhere. Like, I know here in Texas, there's a good seven, eight promotion just in my general area that guys can work on. We have a lot of guys out here that work two, you know, three times a week with the amount of groups that are on here. So indie wrestling, in your opinion, you know, you're still with uh, Pro Wrestling Mid-South and all that. 
Well, how is indie wrestling looking in your opinion, and where do you see it going? Do you see it continuing to rise, or do you see it eventually kind of coming to that plateau where it's just going to kind of, you know, like it did maybe back in the 80s? Well, for me, indie wrestling is, you know, um, with indie wrestling, the business is kind of upside down. You know, back in the territory days, promoters made money, and then the people that worked for them made money too. What I'm seeing on the independent days is there's, there's guys that make money, but in more cases than not, promoters are losing money. You understand? Like, promoters are um, basically booking guys just to book them. And professional wrestling seems to be the only business where it seems to be okay and sometimes even celebrated to lose money. You know, if promoters worried more about a budget and actually making money, then they could stick around a lot longer. But what happens is they get this idea – they go with it. They, you know, they, they lose money for a couple of years. They shut down, and then no one cries cries Argentina for them because guess what? A week later, someone's going to open up right in their same spot, and the boys never lose a booking. You know, I think we need to have a, a serious mindset of, you know, if, if guys really want to make the territories and make independence happen again, then there has to be a a understanding that these promoters need to make money to make it really successful. All right, well, I'm going to pass the mic over to Glenn now. We're coming close to the end of our show. I personally would like to extend an invitation to have you back on again because Glenn and I have kind of bopped around to different parts of your career and all that, but there's a lot more uh, that we could talk about. So I'd like to extend the invitation to have you back on as a guest. But at this time, I'm going to pass the mic back over to Glenn for the, uh, the final round of our show. Oh, yes. Uh, this has been a very uh, fast-paced and very fun uh, conversation that we've been having with uh, our guest, Golden Boy, Greg Anthony. Uh, before we get going uh, today, and of course, again, like I'm just going to echo what Mike says. The door is open for a future appearance down the road. But let's talk about social media. Uh, where can we find you uh, to check out uh, your comings, your goings, where you're working, uh, when you're working? Uh, where, are the thing- where, where can we find out uh, a little bit more uh, about uh, Mr. Golden Boy, Greg Anthony? The best place to find me is on, on Facebook, and that's obviously, you know, the Golden Boy, Greg Anthony. On Twitter, I'm golden, at Golden Boy Greg. And then uh, also on Facebook, if you, if you like, our, like the page Pro Wrestling Mid-South, you pretty much see a lot of what's going on around us. So. Very cool, very cool. Is there anything upcoming that you would like to promote uh, that you are going to be a part of here just uh, as we are, we're sitting here today? Yeah, we've actually got a big show coming up in a few weeks in, in Ripley, Tennessee. It's uh, called Ripley Mania, Ripley Mania 3. Uh, and uh, actually, the innovator of violence, Tommy Dreamer, is going to be on the show. So that uh, that's going to be a big show. That's our yearly event at the high school there in Ripley. So look forward to seeing a bunch of people out for it. Oh, that should be a great, great time. Well, it looks like the clock on the wall tells us it's time to get on out of here. Uh, as always, a, a big thank you to uh, the Grizzle Vet, uh, Mike McCurdy. Mike, uh, I, I thank you for uh, booking this wonderful guest and always for uh, contributing to the cause of keeping wrestling memories alive, my friend. I always enjoy trying to book uh, guests for you know that I think our listeners are going to enjoy. and we got a good list of people coming up, too, so I'm looking forward to upcoming weeks of Wrestling uh, Absolutely. Well, it's time to get on out of here. For the Golden Boy, Greg Anthony, and the Grizzled Vet, Mike McCurdy, you have been listening to Wrestling Memories Then and Now. <laughs>